Chapter 18 of The City of Fire by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 The last house in the village on the road to economy was the Harricots. It was built of grey cement blocks that the elder had taken for a bad debt and had neither vine nor blossom to soften its grimness. Its windows were supplied with green holland shades and its front door yard was efficiently manned with plum trees and a peach while the backyard was given over to vegetables. Elder Harricot walked to economy every day to his office in the economy bank. He said it kept him in good condition physically. His wife was small and prim with little quick prying eyes and a false front that had a tendency to go askew. She wore bonnets with strings and her false teeth didn't quite fit. They clicked as she talked. She kept a watch over the road at all times and very little ever got by her unnoticed. In wholesome contrast, next door was the trim little white cottage where Tom McMurtry and his mother Christy lived, smothered in vines and ablaze with geraniums all down the front walk. And below that, almost facing the graveyard, was a little green shingled bungalow. Mary Rafferty kept her yard aglow with phlox, verbenas, and pansies, and reveled in vines and flowering shrubs. These two women were wonderful friends, though forty years marched between them. Mary's hair was black as a crow's wing above her great pansy blue eyes with their long curling lashes, while Christie's hair was sandy silver and her tongue full of burrs. They had opposite pantry windows on the neighboring sides of their houses, where they often talked of a morning while Christie molded her sweet loaves of bread or mixed scones and Mary made tarts and pies and cake for Jim's supper. Somehow, without much being said about it, they had formed a combination against their hard little knot of a neighbor behind the Holland Shades. The first house on the side street that ran at right angles to the main thoroughfare, just below Rafferty's, was Duncannon's. A picket fence at the side let into the vegetable gardens of the three, and the quiet little Mrs. Duncannon, with the ripply brown hair and soft brown eyes, often slipped through and made a morning call under cover of the kindly pole beans that hid her entrances and exits perfectly from any green holland shaded windows that might open that way. Jane Duncannon formed a third in this little combination. On the Monday morning following the session meeting, Mary Rafferty and Christy McMurtry were at their respective pantry windows, flinging together some toothsome delicacies for the evening meal, that all might move smoothly during the busy day. A neat line of flopping clothes glimmered in each back yard over the trim green that stretched across in front of the back door, and the irons were on in both kitchens preparing for a finish as soon as a piece should show signs of dry. "'Have you heard what the extra session meeting was called for, Mary?' asked the older woman, looking up from her mixing bowl. "'Tom went to the mill to take the place of the night watchman. "'His father's dying, you can, and Tom's not come by yet. "'I thought you might have heard.' "'Mary lifted her eyes with troubled glance. "'Not yet,' she said, "'but I'm thinking of running over to Duncannon's "'as soon as I get these pies in the oven. "'The clothes won't be dry for a while, "'and I'll take my pan of peas to shell.' She'll know, of course. Maybe it's nothing much. But Jim said they held up Mark Carter and made him come in. It was ten minutes of ten before he got away. You don't suppose anybody's taken the gossip to the session, do you? There's one we know well would be full capable of the same, affirmed Christy, patting her biscuits into place and tucking the bread cloth deftly over them. But I'd be sorry to see a minister and a session as would be held up by one poor whimpering little elder of the like of him. "'Mr. Severn won't, I'm sure of that,' said Mary trustingly. "'But there comes Mrs. Duncannon now. "'I'll run over and see what's in the wind.' 
Mrs. Duncannon had grown a smile on her gentle face that was like as two peas to her husband's wide, kindly grin, but there was no smile on her face this morning as she greeted her two friends and dropped into a chair by the door of Christie's immaculate kitchen, and her soft brown eyes were snapping. She had an air of carrying kindly, mysterious explosives. "'Did you hear that old Farage held up Mark Carter last night and as good as called him a murderer in the face of the whole session?' she asked breathlessly. "'And what said our minister to that?' inquired Christy. Jane Duncannon flashed her a twinkle of appreciation. "'He just clapped the senior elder in the chair as neat as a pin in a pincushion and moved an expression of confidence. Utmost confidence was the word.' Mm, I thought as much.' commented Christy, the blessed mon. Oh, I'm so glad, sighed Mary Rafferty, sinking into a chair. Jim thinks the sun rises and sets in Mark Carter. They were kids together, you know. He says people don't know Mark, and he said if they turned Mark down at the church now, if they didn't stand by him in his trouble, he had no more use for their religion. Don't you believe it, Mary Rafferty? Jim Rafferty loves the very ground the minister walks on. "'What was that?' exclaimed Jane Duncannon, running to the side window. "'A strange car! Mary, come here! Is that the chief of police from economy?' Mary darted to the window, followed by the elder woman. "'Yes, it is!' she exclaimed, drawing back aghast. "'You don't suppose he's going to Carter's? He wouldn't do that, would he?' "'He has to do his duty, doesn't he?' mused Christy. "'But thought's not saying he likes it, child.' "'Well, he might find a way not to frighten his mother.' Mrs. Duncannon stretched her neck to see if he was really stopping at the parsonage, and Christy murmured, "'Perhaps he will.' The little group lingered a moment till Mary bethought her pies in the oven, and the three drifted thriftily back to their morning tasks, albeit with mind and heart down in the village. Presently on the glad morning air sounded again the chug-chug of the motor, bringing them sharply back to their windows. Yes, there was the chief's car again, and Mark Carter with white, haggard face sat in the back seat, apprehension flew to the soul of each loyal woman. But before the sound of the chief's motor bearing Mark Carter economy word had passed out of hearing, Jane Duncannon, in a neat brown dress with a little round brown ribboned hat set trimly on her ripply hair and a little round basket on her arm covered daintily with a white napkin, was nipping out her tidy front gate between the sunflowers and asters and tripping down Maple Street as if it had been on her mind to go ever since Saturday night. Even before Mary Rafferty had turned from her Nottingham-laced parlor window and gone with swift steps to her kitchen door, Christy McMurtry stood on her back step with her sunbonnet on and a glass of jelly wrapped in tissue paper in her hand. "'She's glimpsed him,' she whispered briefly with a nod toward the Holland shades, "'and she's up in her side bedroom putting on her Sunday bonnet. She'll be out the door in another two minutes, the little black crow. If we bide in the fields we can mack Carter's back stoop afore she gets much past the church.' Mary Rafferty caught up her pan of peas, dashed them into a basket that hung on the wall by the door, and bareheaded as she was, hastened out through the garden after her friend, for all the world as if she were going to pick more peas. Down the green lane between the bean poles they hurried through the picket gate, pushing aside the big grey Duncannon cat who basked in the sun under a pink hollyhock, with a Duncannon smile on its grey whiskers like the rest of the family. "'Jane! Jane Duncannon!' called Christy McMurtry but the hollow echoes in the tidy kitchen flung back emptily, and the plate of steaming cinnamon buns on the white scrubbed table spoke as plainly as words could have done that no one was at home. She's gone! 
The two hurried around the house, through the front gate, across the street with a quick glance up and down to be sure that the Petrie babies playing horse in the next yard were their only observers, and then tucking under the bars of the fence they scuttled on a slope, crossed a trickle of a brook and hurried creekward and up the opposite bank. Behind Little's barn they paused to glance back. Someone was coming at the Harricot door, someone wearing a bonnet and a black veil. They hurried on. There were two more fences separating the meadows. Mary went over and Christy between. They made quick work of the rest of the way and crept panting through the hedge at the back of Carter's just as Jane Duncannon swung open the little gate in front with a glimpse back up the street in triumph and a breath of relief that she had won. By only so much as a lift of her lashes and a lighting of her soft brown eyes did she recognize and incorporate the other two in her errand, and together the three entered the Carter house by the side entrance with a neighborly tap and a call. "'Miss Carter, you home?' Quick, nervous steps overhead, a muffled voice calling catchily, "'Yes, I'm coming. Just sit down, won't you?' And they dropped into three dining-room chairs and drew breath, mopping their warm faces with their handkerchiefs and trying to adjust their minds to the next move. Their hostess gave them no time to prepare a program. She came hurriedly down the stairs, obviously anxious, openly with every nerve on the qui vive, and they saw at once that she had been crying." Her hair was damp about her forehead as if from hasty ablution. She looked from one to another of her callers with a frightened glance that went beyond them as if looking for others to come as she paused in the doorway, puzzled. "'This is a surprise party, Miss Carter,' began Jane Duncannon laughing. "'We all brought our work along and can't stay but a minute, but we got an idea and couldn't keep it till ladies' aid. You got a minute to spare? Go get your knitting and set down. Now!' It's Miss Severn's birthday next Saturday, and we thought it would be nice to get her a present. What do you think about it? Mrs. Carter, who had stood tensely in the doorway, her fingers whitely gripping the woodwork, her face growing whiter every minute, suddenly relaxed with relief in every line of her body and bloomed into a smile. Oh, why is it? Of course. What'll it be? Why, couldn't we finish that sunburst bed quilt we started last year while she was away? If we all get at it, I think we could finish— there's some real fast quilters in the aid. Wait till I get my apples to pair. I promised Mark I'd have applesauce for lunch. A quick glance went from eye to eye and a look of relief settled down on the little company. She expected Mark home for lunch then. They were in full tide of talk about the quilting pattern when a knock came on the front door and Mary Rafferty jumped up and ran to open it. They heard the Harricot voice, clear, sharp, incisive. I came to sympathize... And then, as Mary swung her face into the sunlight, the voice came suddenly up as against a stone wall with a gasp and, "'Oh, it's you! Where's Mrs. Carter? I wish to see Mrs. Carter.' "'She's right back in the dining room, Mrs. Harricot. Come on back. We're talking over how to celebrate Miss Severn's birthday. Do you like a straight quilting or diamond, Miss Harricot? It's for the sunburst coverlet, you know.' "'The sunburst coverlet?' exclaimed Mrs. Harricot irately, as though somehow it were an indecent subject at such a time as this. But she followed Mary back to the dining room with a sniff of curiosity. She fairly gasped when she saw Mrs. Carter with her small, sensitive face bright with smiles. "'Just take that chair by the window, Mrs. Harricot,' she said affably, "'and excuse me for not getting up. I've got to get these apples on the fire, for I promised Mark some applesauce for lunch, and he likes it stone cold.' Mrs. Harricot pricked up her ears. Oh, Mark is coming home for lunch, then. Her voice was cold, sharp, like a steel knife dipped in lemon juice. There was a bit of a curl on the tip of it that made one wince as it went through the sole. 
Little Mrs. Carter flushed painfully under her sensitive skin, up to the roots of her light hair. She had been pretty in her girlhood, and Mark had her coloring in a stronger way. "'Oh, yes, he's coming home for lunch,' she answered brightly, glad of this much assurance. "'And he has to have it early because he has to drive that strange young woman from the parsonage back somewhere down in New Jersey.' She came alone by herself yesterday, but the mountain passes sort of scared her, and she asked Mark to drive back with her. Oh? There was a challenge in the tone that called the red to Mrs. Carter's cheek again, but Christy McMurtry's soft, burring tongue slid in smoothly. What would you think of the briar pattern around the edge? I know it's some work, but it's a bonny border to lie under, and it's not so tedious when there's plenty of folks to take a hand. They carried the topic along with the whirl then, and Mrs. Harricot had no more chance to harry her hostess. Then suddenly Mary arose in a panic. "'I left my pies in the oven!' she cried. "'They'll be burned to a crisp. I must go, Miss Harricot. Are you going along now? I'll walk with you. I want to ask you how you made that plum jam you gave me a taste of the other day. Jim thinks it is something rare, and I'll have to be making some, or he'll never be satisfied. That is, if you don't mind.' and before Mrs. Carter realized what was happening, Mary had marshaled the Harricot vulture down the street and was questioning eagerly about measures of sugar and plums and lemon peel and nuts. "'Now,' said Christy, sitting down her jelly glass that she had been holding all this time, "'we'll be ganging away. There's a bit jar of raspberry jam for the laddie with that bright smile, and you think it over and run up and say which pattern you think is bonniest.' "'It was just beautiful of you all to come,' said little Mrs. Carter, looking from one to another in painful gratitude. "'Why, it's been just dear for you to run in this way.' "'Yes, a regular party,' said Jane Duncannon, squeezing her hand with understanding. "'See, Mary has left her peas. You'd best put them on to boil for Mark. He'll be coming back pretty soon. Come, Christy woman, it's time we was back at our work.' and they hurried through the hedge and across the meadows to their home once more, but as they entered the Duncannon gate they marked Billy Gaston, head down, pedaling along over on Maple Street, his jaws keeping rhythmic time with his feet. One hour later the smooth chug of a car that was not altogether unfamiliar to their ears brought those four women eagerly to their respective windows, and as the old clock chimed the hour of noon they beheld Mark Carter driving calmly down the street toward his own home in his own car. His own car, and Billy Gaston lounging lazily by his side, still chewing rhythmically. Mark's car, Mark, Billy, ah, Billy. Three of them mused with a note of triumph in their eyes. And Mrs. Harricot, as she rolled her Sunday bonnet strings, mused, Now how in the world did that Mark Carter get his own car down to economy when he went up with the chief? He had it down here this morning, I know, for I saw him riding around. And that little imp of a Billy... I wonder why he always tags him round. Miss Saxon ought to be warned about that. I'll have to do it. But how in the world did Mark get his car? Billy enjoyed his lunch that day, a bit of cold chicken and bread, two juicy red-cheeked apples, and an unknown quantity of sugary doughnuts from the stone crock in the pantry. He sat on the side step munching the last doughnut he felt he could possibly swallow. Mark was home and all was well. Himself had seen the impressive glance that passed between Mark and the chief at parting. The chief trusted Mark, that was plain. Billy felt reassured. He reflected that the guy Judas had been precipitate about hanging himself. If he had only waited and done a little something about it, there might have been a different ending to the story. It was sort of up to Judas anyway, having been the cause of the trouble. With this virtuous conclusion, Billy wiped the sugar from his mouth, mounted his wheel, and went forth to browse in familiar and much-neglected pastures. 
He eyed the Carter house as he slid by. Mrs. Carter was placidly shaking up the tablecloth on the side porch. Mark had eaten his applesauce and gone. He passed Browns, Todds, Bateses, chasing a white hen that had somehow escaped her confines, but in front of Jones's he suddenly became aware of the blue car that stood in front of the parsonage. It had come to life and was throbbing. It was backing toward him and going to turn around. On the sidewalk, leaning on a cane, stood the obnoxious stranger for whose presence in Sabbath Valley he, Billy Gaston, was responsible. He lounged at ease with a smile on his ugly mug and acted as if he lived there. There was nothing about his appearance to suggest his near departure. His disabled car still stood silent and helpless beside the curb. Aw, gee. Billy swerved to the other side of the road to avoid the blue car at a hair's breadth. But as it turned, he looked up impudently to behold the strange girl with the flower on her face and the green baseball bats in her ears, smiling up into the face of Mark Carter, who was driving. Billy nearly fell off his wheel and under the car, but recovered his balance in time to swerve out of the way without apparently having been observed by either Mark or the lady, and shot like a streak down the road. Beyond the church, he drew a wide curve and turned in at the graveyard, casting a quick furtive eye toward the parsonage, where he was glad not to discover even the flutter of a garment to show that Lynn Severn was about. That guy was there, but Miss Lynn was not chasing him. That was as it should be. He breathed a sigh from his heavy heart and stole sadly back to the old mossy stone where so many of his life problems had been thought out. Still, that guy was there. He had the advantage. And Mark and that lady... Bah! He sat down to meditate on Judas and his sins. It seemed that life was just about as disappointing as it could be. His rough young hand leaned hard against the grimy old stone till the half-worn lettering hurt his flesh, and he shifted his position and lifted his hand. There on the palm were the quaint old letters, imprinted in the flesh. Blessed are the dead. Gosh, yes, weren't they? Judas had been right after all. Aw, gee, he said aloud. What a fool I've been. He glanced down at the stone as he rubbed the imprint from the fleshy part of his hand. The rest of the text caught his eye. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. There was a catch in that, of course. It wasn't blessed if you didn't die in the Lord. In the Lord meant that you didn't do anything Judas-like. He understood. The people who didn't die in the Lord weren't blessed. They didn't go to heaven, whatever heaven was. They went to hell. Heaven had never seemed very attractive to Billy when he thought of it casually, and he had taken it generally for granted that he, being a boy, was naturally destined for the other place. In fact, until he knew Lynn Severn, he had always told himself calmly that he expected to go to hell sometime. It had seemed the manly thing to do. Most men, to his mind, were preparing for hell. It seemed the masculine place of final destiny. Heaven was for women." He had ventured some of this philosophy on his aunt once in a particularly strenuous time when she had told him that he couldn't expect the reward of the righteous if he continued in his present ways, but she had been so horrified and wept so long and bitterly that he hadn't ever had the nerve to try it again. And since Marilyn Severn had been his teacher, he had known days when he would almost be willing to go to heaven, for her sake— he had also suspected, at times, that Mr. Severn was fully as much of a man as Mark Carter, although Mark was his own, and if Mark decided to go to hell, Billy felt there could be no other destiny for himself. But now, face to face with realities, Billy suddenly began to realize what hell was going to be like. Billy felt hell surrounding him. Flames could not beat the reproach that now flared him in the face and stung him to the quick with his own sinfulness. He, 
Billy Gaston, captain of the Sabbath Valley baseball team, prospective captain of the Sabbath Valley football team, champion runner and high jumper, champion swimmer and boxer of the Boys League of Monopoly County, friend and often tolerated companion of Mark Carter the Great, trusted favorite of his beloved and saintly Sunday school teacher, was in hell. He could never more hold up his head and walk proud of himself. He was in hell at 14 for life and by his own act. And gosh, hang it, hell didn't look so attractive in the near vision stretching out that way through life and then some, as it had before he faced it. He'd rather walk through fire somewhere and stand some chance of getting done with it sometime. Aw, gee, gosh, what a fool I been. And then he set himself to see just what he had done while his high walls of sin seemed to rise closer about him and his face burned with the heat of the pit into which he had put himself. There was that guy Shafton, sissy man. He had put him in the parsonage along with his beloved teacher. If he only hadn't taken that ten dollars or listened to that devil of a pat, he wouldn't have put up that detour and Shafton would have gone on his way. What difference if he had got kidnapped? His folks would have bailed him out with their old jewels and things. What did anybody want of jewels for anyway? Just nasty little bits of stone and glass. Mark had seen the guy there in church. Mark didn't like it. He knew by the set of Mark's mouth. Of course, Mark went with Cherry sometimes, but then that was different. Lynn was, well, Lynn was Miss Marilyn. That was all there was about it. And if he hadn't put up that detour, Mark would have gone home that night before 12, and his mother would have known he was home, and likely other people would have seen him, and been able to prove he wasn't out shooting anybody, and then they wouldn't have told all those awful things about him. Of course, now Mark was safe. Of course. But then it wasn't good to have things like that said about Mark. It was fierce to have a thing like that session meeting to remember. He wanted to kill that old ferret of a haricot whenever he thought about it. Then he would be a murderer and be hanged, and he wouldn't care if he did, maybe. Aw, oh, gee. A meadowlark suddenly pierced the sky with its wild, sweet note high in the air somewhere, and Billy wondered with a sick thud of his soul how larks dared to sing in a world like this, where one could upset a whole circle of friends by a single little turn of finance that he hadn't meant anything wrong by at all. The bees droned around the honeysuckle that billowed over the little iron fence about a family burying lot, and once Lynn Severn's laugh, not her regular laugh, but a kind of a company polite one, echoed lightly across to his ears and his face dropped into his hands. He almost groaned. Billy Gaston was at the lowest ebb he had ever been in his young life, and his conscience, a thing he hadn't suspected he had, and wouldn't have owned if he had, had risen up within him to accuse him, and there seemed no way on earth to get rid of it. A conscience wasn't a manly thing, according to his code, yet here he was, he, Billy Gaston, with a conscience. It was ghastly. End of chapter 18